0: The save stat didn't even exist until the late 60s. It was invented by a sports writer who came up with some, in my opinion, rather arbitrary criteria for awarding saves. And what we've seen over the last 40 years, uh, 40 plus years since then, is an increasing adherence by teams to the stat. They're managing to the stat. They're building rosters around the stat. We even compensate players around that stat. Yet whether a reliever gets a lot of saves is, more than anything else, just a function of when he's used. And unfortunately, because when I say teams are managing and building rosters around the stat, what it has resulted in for most clubs is they take their best reliever and they limit him. We see him less often. He's only allowed to pitch in the ninth inning and only if the team has a lead, but not too much of a lead because then it's not a save situation anymore. And any stat, rule, guideline, whatever, that causes you to use one of your best players less often is ruining the game. It's worse for you as a team. You're not going to win as many games. And it's worse for the fans. They come to see the best players play. Of course, you may never get to that ninth inning save situation for which you were so ardently saving your quote unquote proven closer.
1: A good case in point: uh, the Tigers took a seven to one lead into the bottom of the ninth inning against the Indians last month, and you know you're not going to bring your closer in with a six run lead. Uh, But they had to because William Cuevas came in, loaded the bases, and allowed a run to score. Rodriguez comes in, gives up a grand slam home run to Lonnie Chisenhall before getting the final out. The Tigers won 7-6, and as a result, K-Rod gets another save, which just seems counterintuitive.
0: Right, did he pitch well? No, of course he didn't pitch well. And that's really, when you're evaluating any player, that's the question. Did he do his job? Did he play well? Uh, in the in the context of what he actually did himself, K. Rod, did they win the game? Yes. Did he was he an effective pitcher that day? Of course not. gave up a home run, allowed inherited runners to score. That's not effective pitching, and he, his line the, or whatever stats we use to evaluate his performance in that game or week or over a whole season should focus on that. Did he, the pitcher's job is to get out. Did he get out? Did he prevent runs from scoring? We're talking about a hitter. Did he get on base or did he not get on base? If he did get on, did he hit for the, the ability to advance runners who are already on base or put himself into into scoring position? And that's it. What other players did shouldn't affect what your what one player's individual stat line says, and that's a big theme that recurs quite a bit in smart baseball, is getting rid of that context and looking at players on stats that are truly independent of what other players might have contributed.
1: Now, as you well know, having been a baseball writer and uh, having worked uh, for baseball teams, there are those who would argue that, you know, there's just something intrinsically different about pitching the ninth inning of a close game that requires someone with that extra measure of guts or mojo or mental toughness or whatever that sets that mm-hmm. closer apart from every other relief pitcher in every other situation. And if I'm reading the book right, uh, that's nonsense.
0: Yes, it is absolutely nonsense. It is one of a lot of baseball myths and cliches that I try to take aim at. And I will tell you, if you go, if you talk to people in front offices, you will find Greater skepticism of those platitudes than you will in the media or among fans as a whole. The idea of the player who's just clutch who can just he just can smell an RBI out there. <laughs> but people in baseball they realize that that's probably not true. The idea of a pitcher who can pitch really effectively in the seventh or the eighth but can't handle the pressure of the ninth. Not in the big leagues. You might find those guys in high school or college who can't handle the greater pressure, but the guys who've gotten to the big leagues. If there's any kind of mental incapacity to handle pressure situations, they've been weeded out long before they reach the majors. And that's why smart teams for a while were taking advantage of other teams who might still have believed that stuff to pick up players maybe for $0.80 on the dollar, to find someone else's setup guy and make him into a proven closer. And then the A's did this a few times I detail in the book. They would just keep trading for other relievers, making them closers, give them a year or two of – save totals and turn around and trade them for something better. And it wasn't until other teams finally caught on and realized, wait, maybe we can just make our own closers that that inefficiency in the market started to close up. And, and we're at a point now where I think all 30 teams are, are fairly rational about uh, some of these myths about players, but it hasn't quite come through to our side of the business. And That was a big part of the reason why I wanted to write the book.
1: Why, then, do we hold on to these beliefs about closers and relief pitchers despite reams of measurable data to the contrary?
0: Huge philosophical question. You know, I think there's a fair amount of, of uh, just anti-intellectualism that, you know, they don't want people who don't like the idea that baseball, like everything else, is now being run to some extent by big data. And that's affecting all industries, all walks of life now. Everything, if you go on the Internet, you are sort of, you're being, uh, manipulated a bit by big data. And that's certainly happening within baseball and within all other sports. And I think there's a nostalgia angle, too. We want to believe the, uh, in the heroes of our youth. We want to believe that these players that who are our favorites, we have fond memories of, that they had some sort of superhuman abilities to rise to the occasion, to do certain things uh, that even other good big league players weren't capable of doing. And, and if you're in a front office, you have to be able to rise above that kind of uh, pedestrian thinking and look at players through the most objective lenses you can possibly find so that you're making better decisions on who to acquire, who to play, and maybe who to trade.
1: What's a better way to measure the effectiveness of a relief pitcher, and what's a better way to use one?
0: So the, to measure effectiveness of any pitcher, you really want to get at the either how well does he prevent runs or how well does he get outs. And I separate those two because there is a little bit of a debate over which of those two is the best way to look at a pitcher. But I think it's, I try to explain both in the book. I personally view the ultimate job of a pitcher is to get outs. How, how many percentage of the hitters is he facing that he manages to retire? How many of them is he striking out? How many of them is he uh, putting on base via the base on balls? You want to break him down to that most granular possible level. But there is still some value in looking at something like ERA or run average a little better for starters than for relievers, but still looking at run prevention. Ultimately you win the game. If you prevent runs, you score more runs than you allow, than than you win. So you want to measure your pitching staff at least by how many runs they allow. And there are different ways to try to uh, get a better estimate of the runs a pitcher allowed where it's not just uh, runners he put on base, but If he puts a runner on, the next reliever, the next pitcher allows him to score. Well, we want to credit or, I guess, debit each of those two with some portion of that run. And I get a little bit into that in the book as well, talking about how to divide responsibility when it's clearly shared among more than one player.
1: I know time is short. I do want to ask you about another chapter uh, in which uh, you uh, write that uh, Lou Whitaker should be in the Hall of Fame, and you won't get in the argument here in Detroit on that, uh, and that perhaps uh, Jack Morris should not be. In each case, the discussion about their Hall worthiness, or lack thereof, is based on preconceived notions, biases, and these old hat statistics that baseball writers have long used in their voting. And you've written that that has to stop. How should writers and us fans evaluate players, uh, especially the very best ones?
0: I spend I give a chapter to wins above replacement, which is not just a single stat, but a, really a way of trying to encapsulate a player's total value into a single number, and there's a couple different ways to calculate it. And when I interviewed front office executives for the book, they all said that they're internally, the way they value a player's total contributions is something very much like what we see publicly as war, as wins above replacement. They're all calculating it their own ways, but it's the same framework. And for a player's career especially, that might be the best possible application of something like war because any additional noise in the stats is going to generally go away over the course of, of 10 15 20 years of playing and we get a pretty good context free look at a player's total value and then you can work from there i always say start with the when you're talking about hall of fame start with a player's total war for his career and then think about what else might affect your decision on that it doesn't simply have to be a straight war vote but start with an objective basis and then work forward. And in the case of a player like Whitaker, who I'm not even listening to arguments, he doesn't belong in the hall. And by the way, I think Trammell belongs too. Mm-hmm. In the case of Whitaker, you know, the defensive numbers we have from that era aren't quite as accurate as the things we have from the current era. So you might say, well, Whitaker's offense clearly puts him in. Contemporary accounts certainly considered both those middle infielders to be excellent defensive players. So you might even say, well, his war maybe short changes him a little bit because he was probably a better defender than the stats are able to tell us, but you've got at least a good, solid, easily explainable starting point for any argument that, by the way, in Whitaker's case and in Trammell's case, both of them are over the minimum threshold we would see to get into the
1: hall. As you mentioned, different analysts, different teams have different ways of estimating war. There's baseball reference. There's Bill James. Uh, I, I don't know what the formula for it is. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, as someone who has, uh, who prides himself on being able to figure out a batting average or an ERA, how can I appreciate the value of work if I don't understand how to calculate it? Or do I even need to?
0: Well, the argument I try to make in the book is that you don't know how to, how, you don't have to know how to calculate it, but you should understand what goes into it. So, understanding the philosophy behind a metric is really all that's sufficient. You don't need to know how to calculate it, because it turns out calculating a actual value is not that simple. The idea that we grew up with, you think of slugging percentage, which is a perfectly fine stat. I do use it myself. But slugging percentage as a home run is worth four times as much as a single. Turns out that's not actually true. It's probably more than it's more in the range of twice as much value, roughly. It, with, with fractional values like that, with, that we're saying certain events are worth a fraction of a run. As soon as you get into that, that's accurate, but it, you lose that accessibility. And now the average fan isn't going to sit at home and try to calculate a weighted on-base average or batting runs by adding up everything that a player did, nor should you have to. You don't need to do that to appreciate the game. You don't need to do that even to engage in discussions of a player's value uh, with friends or, or online but you do need to understand the philosophy of it. When I say that a home run is not worth four times as much as a single, it's only worth twice as much, you don't need to know the exact value. But it really helps if you understand why I'm saying that, what makes the difference between the values of any two events that could happen in a game. And if you get that, then you can look at a number like war, a number like weighted on base average, and be confident that you can use it without ever having to calculate it yourself.